X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It's Friday, January the 29th. Today, back in the day, January 29th, 2020, COVID cases outnumbered SARS cases for the first time. SARS's respiratory infection that spread across China in 2002 and 2003, there were a total of 5,327 cases of SARS in China alone. The disease killed a total of 774 people across 17 countries. And boy, did the world hear about it. A year ago today, COVID cases reached 7,700. Just 68 of those were located outside of mainland China. By this time, COVID had already killed 170 people. Three days later, the World Health Organization would issue a global health emergency but it would be over a month before COVID was declared a pandemic. Today, back in the day, January 29th, 1845, The Raven, a poem, was first published. The Raven might be Edgar Allan Poe's most famous work, originally published in print in the New York Evening Mirror. The narrative poem takes place in a stormy December night. A grieving student is visited by a raven who only speaks the word nevermore. The poem didn't bring Poe much financial success, but it did make him famous during his lifetime, almost immediately after its publication. Since then, it has remained an iconic part of the literary canon. Today, we have an interview with Stacy Chamberlain, executive director of Oregon AFSCME. X-Ray. First up, though, it is time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Mayor Ted Wheeler has announced former Mayor Sam Adams a role on his staff. Yesterday, Mayor Ted Wheeler announced that Sam Adams will serve as the city's Director of Strategic Innovations. He starts on Monday. We'll report to Deputy Chief of Staff Sonia Schmansky. According to a statement from Wheeler, Adams' role involves pushing forward the mayor's second-term agenda. Focuses include public safety, reducing homelessness, and economic fallout from the pandemic. Wheeler stated, and I'm quoting, Sam's knowledge of the Portland City Hall and his track record of action in getting things done is much welcomed. Adams served as mayor of Portland from 2009 to 2012. He ran for Chloe Udaly's seat in last May's primary, didn't make it to the runoff. Mingus Maps ended up winning. Yesterday, Wheeler also announced another addition to his staff. Dr. Markeisha Smith will become his special advisor on racial justice and equity. Dr. Smith is currently the director of Portland's Office of Equity and Human Rights. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 750 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. There were six new deaths. Multnomah County is still leading with the highest case counts. Washington, Marion, and Lane County saw the next most cases yesterday. In Oregon's prisons, one in four inmates have been infected with COVID-19. 3,305 inmates have been infected since the pandemic began. These devastating numbers came from the Department of Corrections on Wednesday. There are currently an estimated 333 active cases of the coronavirus across Oregon's prisons. At least 41 people have died in prison custody after testing positive for COVID. 11 of those deaths occurred at Two Rivers Correctional Facility within the last 10 days. Inmates at the Coffee Creek Correctional Facility are no longer being separated from others when they test positive. The Department of Corrections confirmed that this has been the case since early January. About 10% of Oregon inmates have already received the vaccine. However, the disease continues to spread. Early on in the pandemic, the Department of Corrections estimated it would need to release 40% of the state's inmates in order to effectively slow the spread within prisons. 
Six Portland restaurants are coming to Lake Oswego. In 2019, the restaurant group Chef's Table announced that certain popular Portland eateries would be opening in Lake Oswego. The plan was put on the back burner when the pandemic wreaked havoc on the restaurant industry. However, new details were recently released regarding Chef's Table's plans to open new locations in Lake Oswego's Mercato Grove. Six restaurants slated to expand Lake Oswego include Oven and Shaker, Grassa, Phil's Donuts, Tasty, St. Jack, and Lardo. Other businesses will be opening up at Mercado Grove as well. All of the restaurants and development will share an outdoor dining area and a liquor license. Several of the restaurants seem to have plans for pandemic-specific operation with an emphasis on delivery. The Oregon Vaccine Advisory Committee met yesterday. They came out with recommendations for certain populations to move closer to the front of the line. People in custody who are age 16 and older was one of their approved populations. They also recommend moving up adults aged 16 to 64 with underlying health conditions, frontline workers who have been working through the pandemic and cannot work from home, and people living in low-income and congregate senior housing. The committee's recommendations will not necessarily be upheld. Public Health Director Rachel Banks has already said the state will have to narrow down the recommendations based on vaccine supply levels. Oregon school districts have laid out their reopening plans. Portland Public Schools' reopening timeline was detailed at their board meeting on Tuesday. Vaccinations for school staff already underway as of Wednesday. Superintendent Guadalupe Guerrero said that all Portland Public Schools would conduct limited in-person learning this March. By April, the plan is for almost all students to be at school part-time. The Beaverton School District announced this week that limited in-person learning would begin on February 22nd. Beaverton plans to begin hybrid instruction by early April. Families of elementary school students have until February 15th to choose whether to remain in distance learning or move to hybrid. The Estacada School District is already starting full days of hybrid learning for kindergarten and first grade this week. The Salem-Kaiser District also hopes to move forward with a hybrid model sometime in February. Portland Bureau of Development Services lays off 13 employees. 98% of the Bureau of Development Services revenue comes from permit fees. The Bureau is responsible for commercial and residential permits throughout the city. But with lower demand for commercial projects during the pandemic, the revenue from these fees is declining. Development projects like office buildings and hotels used to incur sizable permit fees that kept the Bureau running. Ken Ray, spokesperson for the Bureau of Development Services, announced yesterday that 13 non-union workers would be laid off. This is in efforts to avoid the Bureau drawing too heavily from its reserve fund. He also said that further cuts may have to occur in the future. The Bureau, which is overseen by Commissioner Dan Ryan, intends to put forth a budget request to access general funding in the spring. And finally, some good news. Health workers were able to prevent vaccine waste despite being stuck in a snowstorm. On their way back from a vaccination event, Oregon health workers became stuck in the snow at Grants Pass. They held an impromptu vaccination clinic for other stranded drivers in the area. Apparently, six of the doses of vaccine were very close to expiring. Once it became clear that vials wouldn't make it to their intended recipients, Josephine County health workers decided not to let them go to waste. They walked from car to car, offering the extra doses to anyone who would take them. There was an ambulance present on the scene for safety. All six doses were successfully administered. And, and that's that today's, today's Quick Six, quick local, six local, rundown. local Rundown. X-Ray. X-Ray's Christine Alexander is up next with the Executive Director of Oregon AFSCME, Stacey Chamberlain. 
Stacey shares updates on Oregon AFSCME's priorities and insight into President Biden's labor agenda. Here are Stacey and Christine. Joining me now on the line is Stacey Chamberlain. She's the executive director of Oregon AFSCME, the largest public sector union in the country. Good morning, Stacey. Good morning, Christine. How are you? I'm really, really good. It's been a long time since we've spoken. I'm happy to have you on the air. I'm happy to be here. So I, I, we've had some huge new union news this week. Um, I'll just run down a few headlines and then let's break it down. Um, right. Yesterday, President Biden signed an executive action pushing Made in America, which is great. Um, the Supreme Court gave us a rare win by refusing to hear a block of cases aimed at bankrupting union. That involved the, the Janus kinds of cases, and we'll talk about that. And then on his first day in office, President Biden fired General Counsel Peter Robb of the National Labor Relations Board. Then um, I also wanted to mention that President Biden, um, uh, before he became president, he nominated his uh, cabinet. And um, for Labor Secretary, he nominated Marty Walsh, who is the mayor of Boston and a longtime labor leader. Here's what he said when he nominated Marty Walsh. Protective equipment they need. Understands like I do that the middle class built this country and unions built the middle class. He sees how union workers have been how union workers have been holding this country together during this crisis. Healthcare workers keeping our hospitals safe, clean and effective and efficient, I might add. Public service workers fighting against budget shortfalls to keep communities afloat. Port workers, car haulers, warehouse workers, folks keeping our air and rail systems running. They're literally what's keeping us going. And they deserve a Secretary of Labor who knows how to build their power as workers. Who knows that when I say our future will be made in America, a future built by American workers, a future with historic investments in infrastructure, clean energy, manufacturing, and so much more that's going to create millions of good-paying jobs. Marty knows worker power means not just protecting the right to unionize, but encouraging unionization and collective bargaining. The Fair Labor Standards Act way back didn't say, didn't just say you can have unions, it said the government should encourage the formation of unions. It also means protecting pensions, ensuring worker safety, increasing the minimum wage, ensuring workers are paid for the overtime they've earned like we fought for in the Obama-Biden administration, but this administration has weakened. Making sure that we have a trade policy where for every decision we make, unions are at the table. Stacy Chamberlain, uh, executive ah, director of Oregon, asked me, how does that make you feel? I love it. I love it when elected officials say the same thing on the campaign trail, and then when they take office, they actually do what they say they're going to do, right? It uh, is... Uh, it is so exciting to see this. And I think what we've seen from uh, President Biden in his few days of office is just that. He is going to take action and he is going to support uh, American workers, right, who have been under attack, as you've pointed out, from the Supreme Court uh, to legislature. So I think, you know, selecting uh, Marty for this position is spot on. Uh, he is respected by uh, not only the president, um, but also uh, in labor. And I think it signals to us this uh, commitment 
to protect workers and uh, to have a pro-labor agenda uh, once again being pushed by this administration. I'm just thrilled by it. It gives me chills, and and Fantastic. I'm so excited. And I, I mentioned this earlier to Kira. You know, a lot of us uh, might have hoped for a more progressive candidate. However, one thing I know that's true about Joe Biden is he means what he says when it comes to unions. He's he's always been that way, a supporter of labor. So, so Stacy, how what is the status of AFSCME? And and uh, you represent public workers, and a, a lot of people may not really understand what that means, and or might have think of it as the deep state, you know, or something like that. What is what is um, AFSCME stand for, and and what? Um, what are your workers all about? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so Oregon AFSCME, AFSCME stands for American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Uh, we represent about 30,000 workers across the state um, that are public employees that work at the cities, counties, states, and uh, a, a bunch of nonprofit workers. These are the essential workers, uh, many of whom have been on the front lines of this pandemic. They're uh, everything from child care workers, behavioral health care workers, uh, nurses, corrections officers, um, you know, uh, water uh, treatment plant operators, uh, doctors, lawyers, and everything in between. Uh, we have, uh, we represent Oregon's workers. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, so uh, it's so important. AFSCME is such a great, uh, a great organization and an important one and covers so many different types of trades, which I find fascinating. Um, one thing that I know you and I have talked about in the past was the Supreme Court and the Janus decision. Um, can you give our listeners a little bit, just a, a quick rundown of what Janus versus AFSCME was about yeah, no problem. Uh, Janice was uh, in a long line of a series of cases that were really uh, targeted at uh, trying to destroy the, uh, America's labor movement. Uh, it started with Harris v. Quinn in 2014, and we saw Friedrichs. And Janice was the, the culmination of a public sector case where a worker um, sued uh, the uh, AFSCME uh, for uh, having to pay fair share. So under the current law that had been uh, the law of the land in America uh, for over 40 years, um, we're legally required as a labor union to represent everybody a contract covers, regardless of whether they're a member or not. And those folks that choose not to be a member pay a fair share fee because they get a benefit and uh, of the contract and representation, and they have to pay for those costs. And in the Janus case, what it did is it threw out that long-held uh, Supreme Court standing. Mm. And so what it did is it, it allowed for free riders, for folks uh, that didn't want to pay union dues to not have to pay and still enjoy all of the benefits of uh, being in the union. So that's what the case did. And, uh, you know, it was supposed to be the, uh, the nail in the coffin uh, for America's labor movement. And I think what we showed is we actually grew um, since Janice and more workers have actually uh, tried to form and have been successful in forming unions since then. Well, and, and this, this case really tried to hit unions in the pocketbook so that Absolutely. unions would be starved of the funds that they need to operate and would collapse. That was, that was the hope of the people backing that kind of, uh, led, of uh, Supreme Court. And so Janice won, and yeah, we were afraid that what that would mean. But as you said, your membership grew, and, 
And now what um, the reason I bring Janice up is because the Supreme Court announced yesterday that it's not going to hear a block of several cases that threaten to impose uh, more financial penalties on the unions. So tell me tell me about that. That's a big deal that they're not going to hear these cases. That was really exciting, too. So uh, after the Janice decision came out, then we had a number of other cases uh, where folks were trying to reap back back, uh, fair share fees that they had paid. I mean, this is an administrative nightmare, right? We acted in good faith. We were following the law of the land. So as these cases were popping up, it was really just another, uh, you know, another thing another attack on us and uh yesterday we were very excited uh that uh the supreme court decided not to hear these cases and uh we actually had a case pending in the ninth circuit um called chambers which uh we're hopeful now uh this case will go away as well so um just a really good indication uh from the court that you know hopefully that these string of cases that are really just a uh targeted attack against uh the labor movement are done. No, gosh, I hope that's the message. My fingers are crossed. Um, (laughs) You know, these so-called right to work laws, which I think is a right to be worked to death is a better um, explanation. They prohibit those fees. And uh, but who who's bringing these laws about? Who's trying to who's trying to who's backing it? I mean, Janice was a guy, right, of an individual. Mm -hmm. But but he wasn't this wasn't his idea. Right. Oh, Christine, we could go. We could spend an hour on this segment. <laughs> I mean, there. I mean, it is the the one percent. It is the Koch brothers. It is the wealthy Americans funding organizations like the Freedom Foundation, in an attempt to try to dissuade uh, Oregon's uh, labor members uh, from being in a union, right? And uh, groups like the Freedom Foundation contact our members uh, at home, uh, send mail and uh, generally harass them, trying to get them to drop their membership. And, you know, even with sort of all of this money being poured into campaigns targeted at members trying to get them to drop membership, it just hasn't resonated. Well, um, you know, it is just a, another way of trying to um, break the worker. And Absolutely. we know that unions, unionization increases wages, increases benefits, increases safety, which is another big factor in in some trades. And, um, you know, the idea that that you can be protected by a union but not have to pay a percentage into it is is counterintuitive. You know, you should have to pay your fair share in order to be protected along with the rest of the workers. And in the long run, you're going to benefit because you might pay what I think it it was a 5% fee, but your wages are going to go up by 13, 14% overall. If you're, that's just on the average. Right. But our dues aren't even close to anything close like that. It's, it's, uh, 5% would be really high for a dues percent. Um, but uh, for us, um, it's not even close. It's, uh, I think most of uh, our folks are about 1.27. Um, but, Regardless of that, I mean, the fact is, is that members want to be in a union because that's where their power and their voice is. It's not about me. It's not about the structure of the union. The union is the members in the work site. It's the it's their voice on the job. It is their ability to negotiate a contract to make sure that they have protections against COVID. Um, And what we've seen is, especially during this pandemic, you know, how much a voice in the workplace is necessary to making sure that workers are protected on the job, because we have 
agencies like uh, that are intended to protect workers that it feels like we're pushing against them to try to get um, the rules and laws that we need uh, to make sure that folks are safe. And hallelujah, we have a president in office who supports that. And, Absolutely. And uh, I'm hoping that we're going to see some some big infrastructure projects. What What are you hoping to see uh, in terms of what the future holds for AFSME? You know, um, obviously we have a national agenda, but in Oregon we try to focus more uh, locally where our members are at. Uh, our agen- legislative agenda uh, for this session is... Uh, a little bit unique, but I mean, it, it, it primarily focuses on making sure that, you know, public services are fully funded and workers are protected. Um, because when public services are fully funded, those folks that need those services um, are getting them. And when we ratchet that back, um, we ratchet back services to the community. And right now with a pandemic um, and exposing kind of the, where we're weakest in our systems and where we actually need to rebuild better, um, now's the time to do that. And so we're advocating for that. And we're also, you know, have a number of things that we're working in coalition on uh, with regard to like childcare and public defense. Well, that's interesting. Stacy Chamberlain, executive director of AFSME is my guest. Can you expound on that? What, what do you mean? Well, um, so for example, childcare in Oregon, even before the pandemic hit, we did not have adequate uh, supply of child care providers to, to fit the need of parents in Oregon. And what happened with the pandemic, um, it hit uh, child care in a really significant way. Um, we represent uh, certified registered in-home child care providers in the state of Oregon. And these are predominantly women-owned business. And when the pandemic hit and folks were pulling uh, kids out of care because they were uh, teleworking or for other reasons, um, or that the child care providers had to close up temporarily, they were hit so hard they weren't able to open back up. Some of them had to lay off staff, and even folks that are open might have had to reduce their hours uh, that they can serve. Mm. So this already was a problem in the state, and what we're trying to do is uh, we're working to connect parents and child care providers. Uh, we launched a uh, website um, to try to help do that, um, and we're working in coalition uh, with a number of groups um, with the Joint Task Force on Access to Quality Affordable Child Care to look at long-term goals um, regarding paying and supporting child care um, at work, um, ensuring that uh, folks have uh, the support for all kids in their programs, uh, building a substitute pool. This is an issue that a lot of our child care providers have. Um, they have helpers that come in and, to allow for them to care for more kids. And if uh, they have somebody who's sick, that has a huge impact on their ability uh, to provide care that day for that many kids. Um, you know, some administrative assistance, there's a lot of rules and regulations um, that uh, in-home child care providers have to uh, follow. And so we want to make sure that we're helping with that. Um, and then also just to make sure that there's assistance and funds available um, to both ramp up uh, for child care and also to assist uh, with low-income families um, in needing child care. Do you see that happening? What Do you, do you have any insight in terms of timelines, uh, being the director of such a large uh, union? Uh, do you have any insight in terms of reopening or when things might ease up? Well, there's a number of child care providers that are open right now um, and that are providing um, 
care during COVID um, that have COVID uh, safe uh, regulations in place uh, that allows them to operate. So that is happening right now. Um, our staff is actively working with the governor's office and the early childhood council on um, trying to put those supports in place. But I think folks are doing their best, um, but it's a challenging situation. It is, no doubt. Stacy Chamberlain, executive director of uh, AFSME here in Oregon, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's always great to talk to you. Let's talk again soon. And Absolutely. And uh, go Union, Biden Union stuff. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Stacy. That's right. Thanks to Stacey for joining the local. Big thanks to our production team. Executive editor doing the magic will Romy, but for whom there would be no the local. Supporting editors and writers, Jonathan Covington-Bram, Brian Miller, Julie Oppenheimer, Carly Quadro, Shalisa Ringering, Miranda Selinger, Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiasi. Big ups to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. You could also say, but for whom there would be no the local. I like saying there would be no the local. You say the both times, it's kind of funny. I'm still down. My name is Jefferson Smith. Thanks for listening to Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray. X-Ray.